Dr. William Davis is a renowned preventive cardiologist and the best-selling author of the groundbreaking number one New York Times runaway bestseller, Wheat Belly. And today, he's here to chat about his latest must-read titled Super Gut. And we're going to go deep on everything from what we're getting wrong about cardiovascular health, our microbiomes, SIBO, and more. William, welcome. Well, thank you. Glad to be here. It is so great to have you. Uh, I read Wheat Belly about a decade ago, and and that book, as many of our listeners know, was a runaway, runaway bestseller and had a transformative effect for for millions of people. I, I joked with you before the show, you're largely responsible, better or for worse, for the grain fleet, grain free and gluten free <laughs> movement. I think, I think, I think for better. And so with all that said, I'm curious since, you know, it's 11 years, I think, since Wheat Belly came out, what's the biggest change you've seen in terms of the research in your findings in in writing this new fantastic book, which everyone should pick up called Supergut around the consumption of grains and the unintended consequences. What, what I think is so also fascinating, you're a cardiologist. People come to you for heart problems. So what have you seen? What are the biggest changes you've seen in the past decade? There've been some changes, Jason. They really haven't made the headlines. Ironically, a lot of this, a lot of the focus on wheat and related grains as uh, a detriment to human health came from the psychiatric world. You may recall that some of the early observations were in paranoid schizophrenia. That is, it was observed that paranoid schizophrenics, this was made in several studies, paranoid schizophrenics, which is a very disabling disease. It's a very difficult condition. But when you remove uh, gluten, people say, but wheat and grains from their diet, they're not cured, but they have a marked reduction in paranoia. You know, these people tend to think that people are plotting to kill them, that kind of stuff. There's a reduction in paranoia. There's a reduction in auditory hallucinations, hearing voices. There's improvement in social engagement, dealing with people. If you add back grains, it comes back. All those uh, symptoms come back. If you remove it, it goes away. So there are several studies showing on again, off again, on again, off again, which is a way to prove cause and effect associations. Well, (laughs) I was surprised to see several psychiatric groups picking that up again. You know, unfortunately, the medical system it's kind of hell bent on developing pharmaceuticals and procedures. And if it comes to just natural means of restoring health, whether it's diet or attention to nutrients that are lacking or the microbiome, my colleagues tend not to care that much about those kinds of things. There's this kind of willful ignorance. That is, you pay attention to the things that generate revenues, pharmaceuticals and procedures, and you don't pay much attention to things that don't generate revenues like diet, nutrients, and the microbiome. Yet, uh, it's my view, doctors and other people in healthcare should be experts. First of all, they should be experts in nutrition. They should be experts in nutrients. They should be experts in the microbiome and resort to pharmaceuticals and procedures only when absolutely necessary. Of course, that is not how the medical system works. I'm, of course, generalizing mostly towards the uh, mainstream MDs, not the naturopaths and functional medicine docs who are doing a lot of good. So if I were to zero in on grains, what's your take on grains in 2022? You know, 
I'm assuming, and you go into detail in the book on this, but I just want to be clear for our audience. Obviously some grains are worse than others. There are some that are probably okay. How would you classify the absolutely try to avoid at all costs versus, you know, probably okay every once in a while. And then, and then the last bucket, you know, probably okay. There's some benefit. How, how do you think about those three buckets, if you will, and what are the grains in each bucket? You know, people often don't think of grasses. That's what grains are. They're seeds of grasses. They don't think of them as being promiscuous. <laughs> they share a lot of genetics. For instance, rye, which is almost identical to wheat in uh, its genetic code. Rye was a weed originally in wild wheat fields, but it's acquired virtually the same genome. As weed looks different, it tastes different as a bread say, but it is quite different. It's quite similar genetically. So there's a lot of overlap in the effects among all the varieties of seeds of grasses, but at the extremely bad end are the products of modern, what's called high yield semi-dwarf wheat plants. These are the plants that were created through thousands of experiments back in the 1960s and 70s in east of Mexico City, by the way, in a foundation funded by the Mexican government, the Rockefeller Foundation. These were not evil people. These were people trying to help feed the world by generating high yield variants of wheat, corn, and soy. Well, with wheat, they did succeed, but it looks very different. It's 18 inches tall. The stalk is very thick. The seeds are very large. The seed head is very long and the yield went up four to eight fold per acre. So from a, the perspective of yield it was a great success. What they didn't do, of course, is test its suitability for human consumption. Well, I would argue no wheat is appropriate for human consumption because even going back 10,000, 8,000 years when humans first adopted wild wheat, there was a major disruption of health when that happened. There was an explosion in tooth decay. There was a doubling of knee arthritis. There's appearance of nutrient deficiencies and that's due to the phytates that bind minerals in, in wheat. So even traditional strains of wheat had their problems, but they were dramatically amplified by modern high-yield semi-dwarf wheat for a whole long list of reasons. The glided protein was changed and made it more, a more potent appetite stimulant. It uh, increased celiac disease uh, incidence fourfold. The modern wheat is enriched in wheat germaglutinin because it's piss, it makes it pest resistant. The greater the wheat germaglutinin content in a wheat plant, the better able it is to resist insects and molds. And so farmers and agribusiness scientists selected wheat to have greater wheat germaglutin, not recognizing it's a very potent bowel toxin. Likewise, phytates are also pest resistant. So farmers selected strains richer in phytate, but phytates bind all minerals in your gut, calcium, magnesium, iron, zinc, and others, and you poop them out. So while we're told that consumption of grains is necessary for B vitamins and fiber, and you'll become the opposite is actually true. Numerous deficiencies develop in people who consume grains in their diet, especially iron. And so the worst is modern high yield semi-dwarf wheat, followed by other more traditional strains of wheat. Rye and barley are very close because of the shared genetics. Corn is still pretty bad because the zein protein of corn looks a lot like the gliadin protein in its amino acid sequence. So still can trigger, for instance, autoimmune diseases. As you get further down the line, oats with its avidin protein, sorghum, and then all the way at the most benign end is rice, but rice is 
Nowhere in that continuum, Jason, do you get one that's completely free of problems. So even rice at the most benign end is mostly sugar, starch, mostly sugar. So it has all the implications of consuming a lot of sugar. And rice is a natural concentrator of arsenic. So it has very large quantities of arsenic, particularly when it's concentrated in forms like rice milk. Now, there's never been an acute toxicity, but there is emerging evidence to suggest there's chronic toxicity from overexposure to arsenic. So let me ask you this. I'm a, I, I know you're a big fan of omega-3s, as am I. I. I love personally getting my wild sliced salmon from the iconic Russ and Daughters here in New York City. We'll walk over there, I'll pick it up. And I got I have to put it on a piece of bread. So if I have to take my, my, my fantastic wild salmon and put it on a piece of bread, and I can get any bread I want, what's, in, in your opinion, what bread should I put that amazing, delicious wild salmon on? We can recreate something close to what looks and tastes like bread, but we choose flowers that have none of these health consequences, like gastrointestinal disruption, appetite stimulation, provocation of small LDL particles that causes coronary disease, heart disease, binding minerals and pooping them out. So let's, if we choose more benign flowers, almond flour is a favorite, ground golden flaxseed, coconut flour. There's a bunch of others. And we can read, it'll, it'll be a little different, but you can still make a very delicious bread or uh, focaccia bread. We do struggle with rye, generating rye because there's no gluten to generate rye. And so we don't have these big loaves that are puffed up. They tend to be flatter, but they can be quite tasty. What, what about sourdough? So many, you know, we also talk, when we talk of grains and, and, and breads, we also think of blood sugar impact and sourdough is one that comes up and, and many people in our world will say, if you're going to have bread, it's going to, it's, it should be sourdough. What's your take on sourdough? Sourdough is the low tar cigarette of grains. <laughs> that is so the process of fermentation does reduce not eliminate but does reduce some of the toxic components it reduces a little bit the wheat germ gluten it reduced the content of amylopectin a amylopectin a is the carbohydrate unique to grains that raises blood sugar higher than table sugar so it, it there those components are reduced but they're not eliminated the glycine protein is reduced graded, sure. but it's still there and when you bake something also, some people will say sourdough bread is a good source of probiotic organisms because it's a fermented product, but you bake it. When you bake it, you kill all the microbes. Got it. So sourdough is, a, we, we got somewhat of an okay. I'll, I'll take that as a win. <laughs> what I think is so interesting about you, it, one of the things is you're a cardiologist. So you mentioned LEO particles in the book. You talk about TMAO, which is a marker we should look at. And before I go to TMAO, because you say how we're thinking about that is, is, is flawed, at least traditional medical system. Can you talk about how this all ladders up to heart health and how you kind of got interested in the gut, in the biome, in, in grains from your perspective, you're a cardiologist. Well, my, so I, I began many years ago, putting in stents and doing atherectomies, angioplasty and aborting heart attacks. But then my mom, who was living in New Jersey, where I grew up died of sudden cardiac death after her successful two-vessel coronary angioplasty. Well, that's what I did for a living in Milwaukee, Cleveland and Milwaukee. And it drove, it illustrated to me just how unsatisfactory it was to try to manage this very dangerous disease in a cath lab. 
because people often don't make it to the cat lab. They have a heart attack at home or they die shoveling snow or something like that. So I wanted to find a way to help people identify those kinds of bad heart events two years, five years, 10 years before they became a real risk. Well, back then, this remains true today, the best, most accessible way to do that is to score the calcium in your arteries because you could see it. And calcium comprises 20% of total atherosclerotic plaque volume. So I set up the first CT, back then at EBT, but now CT scanner in Wisconsin, one of the first in the Midwest. And we started scanning people left and right. And you know what, Jason, there's, when you look for silent early heart disease, it's everywhere. And so I have all these people freaking out because they have high scores. Normal is zero, any score higher, 300, 500, 1,000, means you're getting close to a heart attack, death, sudden cardiac death, or needing a procedure. Well, back then, this is 20 some years ago now, people would come in and they'd have a score say of 300 and they say, what do I do? Well, back then I would say, well, take aspirin, a statin drug at high dose, a cholesterol drug, cut the fat and saturated fat in your diet and exercise. Now we help publish these data. If you do nothing, the score goes up on average 25% per year and you get closer and closer to dying, a heart attack, et cetera. If you put somebody on a high dose of a statin drug like Lipitor and aspirin, low-fat diet, exercise program, heart scan score goes up 25% per year. There's no impact on this measure whatsoever. Well, my colleagues, the experts, said things like, well, if we can't stop it, don't rescan these people. Let them have their symptoms or heart attack and deal with it then. I thought that sucked. I thought that was a terrible answer. And so I looked for ways to at least impact, slow that 25, 25% per year. If that was money, imagine what that would do. That's a very rapid rate of growth. So it took me some years of zigzagging and trial and error, but it led me to lessons like this. You add vitamin D, and it was the first time I saw scores drop. A score of 900 would be 480. So a dramatic decrease. You can actually see the plaque shrinking on the CT heart scan. But one of the tests I was running back then was it's become clear that cholesterol testing is an absurd, outdated notion and that there are better methods to quantify the particles in the blood that lead to heart disease. One of those methods is uh, nuclear magnetic resonance or NMR lipoproteins. And when you see someone with heart disease, whether it's a high calcium score or they had two stents or they survived sudden cardiac death or any of those things, you'll see that virtually 100% of them don't have high cholesterol. That's a ridiculous notion. In fact, they usually have average cholesterols, but they do have, without, almost without uh, exception, an excess, a severe excess of small LDL particles coupled with insulin resistance and inflammation. And so the only thing that causes small LDL particles, this science came out of UC Berkeley, Hopkins, uh, real science, not, not my science, other people's science. They show that the only foods that did that were grains and sugars. So I had my patients, all these people, I said, let's try this. You know, your small LDL on your lipoprotein panel is 2,400 nanomoles per liter, something like that, part of the count per volume. Let's try it. Remove all wheat, grain, and sugar. They'd come back and the small LDL would be zero or some other very low number. In other words, it wasn't just an improvement. It was eradication. But this is when I learned from people would say to me, even tell me that I'd have to stop my insulin and metformin because my blood sugar dropped so much, I'm no longer a type 2 diabetic. 
you didn't tell me I would drop 57 pounds and I would lose eight inches off my waist. You didn't tell me that my ulcerative colitis or rheumatoid arthritis got so much better. I'd have to stop the prednisone and the anti-inflammatory drugs, the biologic injections. So I, I did this, Jason, just for small LDL particles in people with high cardiac calcium scores. And I stumbled into this thing. But it took me a while to accept this because when you think about it, now wait a minute here. I tell people to remove the foods that virtually all physicians, all dietary guidelines, all dietitians, all tell people should be the cornerstone of diet. We take it out and we see life, health, and weight transformed. So, you know, it took me a good year of thinking whether I was the asshole and I had overlooked <laughs> something. And, and I was expecting, for, ah, of course I'm wrong. I never came across that thing, Jason. In fact, the deeper I dug, the more I did this, the more I realized that this was a real thing. And as you've seen, I think the reason why people latched on that message is not because of my charisma and good looks. It ain't that. I, I think it's because it works. Hear you on processed carbohydrates and processed sugars. In terms of meat, how, how do you think about the role of meat and, and what role, if any, in your opinion, does it play in cardiovascular disease? If this was a perfect world and we could do whatever we want, Jason and I would grab an ax, a spear, a bow and arrow, and go kill something. And we would, at the site of the hunt, tear open its belly, eat the stomach, eat the intestines raw, maybe eat a slab of liver, eat that, and then drag the carcass back to the clan and roast it over a fire. That's how humans are supposed to eat. Now, modern humans have gotten so squeamish that we no longer eat the brain or the heart or tongue or liver. And we even do really stupid things like buy boneless, skinless chicken breast and not take all the nutrients out of the bone, bone marrow, the collagen, hyaluronic acid in the skin. So we've all gravitated towards this kind of almost comical way of eating. So meat has nothing to do with coronary disease. Meat has nothing to do with colon cancer. So that came from deeply flawed observational epidemiologic studies. I say, Jason, what did you eat last Tuesday? You say, well, I think I had three eggs and I had maybe some sausage, but then what did I have? And then we, we take those questionnaires and then I call you in five years. I say, Jason, how's your health? You report your health and then we construct some kind of association. That's garbage science. That is the bulk of what came out of the nurses' health study, for instance, the physicians' health study. 22,000 physicians, 47,000 nurses, asking them things like, did you drink milk today? And then trying to predict colon cancer or heart disease five years later, 10 years later. They're absurd studies that can only begin to generate an hypothesis. Unfortunately, people like the USDA and the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services Regard that as good science. It's not good science. It's garbage science that can only become an hypothesis to be proven in real. So it sounds like what you're getting at is, you know, if we are going to enjoy meat, eat your grass fed, your pasture raised, your full fat, your, and avoid your highly processed meats, your highly, you know, whether it's highly processed, your salamis or bacon that's highly processed, like it, it is, am I summarizing correctly? If we're going to enjoy meat? I think you're right. That is, 
make sure you eat the fat, don't trim it off, save the bone, and when appropriate, make soup, stews, or broths out of it. Now, with the processed meats, there's two kind of general categories, and they're very different. Unfortunately, people mix them up. So meats that are cured with sodium nitrate, I think that is an issue, and it's an often misunderstood issue. The issue is not the nitrate. Sodium nitrate is actually very benign, might even be healthy for you if you took it directly. But the problem is if you, let's say you put sodium nitrate in your bacon and then heat it, that's when the nitrate reacts with the amine groups and the proteins. That's where you get those nitrosal products, the nitrosamines that are likely carcinogens. I say likely because in experimental models, they're very carcinogenic. In epidemiologic observational evidence, they seem to be associated with cancer, but that's very weak. But to really prove it, I'd have to say, Jason, we're going to line up a whole bunch of people and we're going to have you eat bacon and either be high in nitrates or have no nitrates. And we're going to watch and see who has more colon cancer. Well, nobody's going to do that. Study, so right. we're left with the uncertainty, but it's probably a carcinogen. Now that's distinct from salami, soprasada, and fermented meats. What those are is raw meat, which are either left uh, to ferment out in the open or are inoculated with microbes. So two common microbes would be Pediococcus penthesaceus and Leuconostoc mesenteroides. <laughs> and these are, and they ferment the meat. So it's raw meat, but fermented and they're delicious. And those don't have nitrites, don't have carcinogenic properties. And in fact, they're sources of very beneficial microbes. Those two species are very beneficial, but it means that people who confuse the fermented meats with the cured meats are depriving themselves of a very important source of beneficial microbes. Interesting. So let me ask you this, to, to summarize your philosophy on diet, what does your food pyramid look like? I think humans should, you know, we live in a world where a lot of things have been perverted, like lifestyle yes. now or Every, everything, everything. So and can we undo all this? Well, I don't know. 7 billion people on this planet fattened up with grains and we say, let's not eat grains. Not really a feasible solution in India, Bangladesh, and Asia. But those of us who can afford to, I think, should have zero grains. So it's not even on the chart. I think the centerpiece should be consumption of animal products, whether that's in the form of fish or shellfish or poultry or wild game or livestock. As best as most people can tolerate in a squeamish world, squeamish modern world, organs whenever you can. Liver is pretty acceptable to some people, at least. Most don't accept thymus and pancreas and kidney, but at least some of that. Uh, save the bones, make stews, broth, soups out of it, save the fat, vegetables, legumes. We, one of the things that a lot of people are not paying attention to is the intake of nutrients that feed the microbiome. That is mostly prebiotic fibers, polysaccharides, and other things that microbes need. And if you, cause if you don't feed them, weird stuff happens. So one of the things that happens, for instance, in, in extreme ketogenic or carnivorous diets, where there's not attention being paid to including legumes like white beans, black beans, kidney beans, uh, onions, garlic, shallots, root vegetables, asparagus, dandelion greens, etc. If you don't pay attention to those kinds of things, something strange happens in the human microbiome, intestinal microbiome. You're starving good bacteria, so they diminish in numbers or die off. But there are some species 
especially acromancia, that loves those fibers, but when it's deprived of fiber, has an added capacity to consume human mucus. Human mucus lines the GI tract. It protects you from microbes and food and other things. Well, when you deprive acromancia of fibers, it turns to human mucus. Its full name is acromancia mucinophila, mucus lover. And it starts to eat through your intestinal wall and it causes colitis, intestinal inflammation, and it opens the door to allow bacterial breakdown products because there are trillions of mac microbes turning over rapidly in the GI tract. The breakdown press gain entry to the bloodstream. That's called endotoxemia. And, but that explains how somebody who does not pay attention to their mucus barrier, the species in their GI tract, et cetera, can export the effects of the microbiome to the skin as rosacea or psoriasis, or to the brain as Alzheimer's dementia, Lou Gehrig's disease, Parkinson's disease, seizure disorders, and depression. Depression's a big one. Or to joints and muscle as rheumatoid arthritis or fibromyalgia. So in other words, all modern common chronic diseases need to be reconsidered, re-examined in light of the human microbiome. But I fear a lot of people who did those diets, severe, strict, low-carb diets, uh, by not paying attention to the intake of those sources of fibers, may pay a long-term health price. Because when you have that endotoxemia, your insulin resistance goes up, your blood sugar goes up, your blood pressure goes up, despite all the upfront benefits, which are substantial. But then long-term, you start to see rise in blood sugar, rise in blood pressure, rise in triglycerides, fatty liver. You start to have intestinal inflammation. You open the door to neurodegenerative disorders, autoimmune disorders, ulcerative colitis, Crohn's disease, diverticular disease, and even colon cancer. You know, bringing it back to the gut, you know, we're huge believers in, in the microbiome and it all starts with a healthy gut. And I, I, I know you believe this and you spend time, a great deal of time in the book talking about SIBO and you believe SIBO is more widespread than type two diabetes and pre-diabetes epidemics. And you say, quote, it is so ubiquitous. It spans all societal levels, regardless of geography, sex, income, or age. I read that. I said, wow. So can you unpack that? That's a pretty big, powerful statement. Can you unpack that one? Sure. You know, Jason, I was guilty. Well, up till a few years ago, I thought SIBO, small intestinal bacterial over the three listeners who are unfamiliar, all it means is stool microbes in the colon have proliferated for whatever reason. You got exposed to an antibiotic, you're eating glyphosate in your food, herbicides, pesticides, all kinds of reasons. But stool microbes, unhealthy microbes have proliferated, out-muscled healthy microbes, but then ascent up into the ileum jejunum of duodenum and stomach. So essentially 30 feet, trillions of microbes. And once again, they turn over really fast, minutes to hours. Their lifespan is only minutes to hours and they die. A lot of their breakdown products enter the bloodstream, endotoxemia. So that's what SIBO is. Well, I was guilty of thinking SIBO was this really unusual thing. Hardly anybody has it. Yeah, we may have all had adverse effects in our, uh, on our microbes in our colon, well, I didn't think this intestinal process, small intestinal process was much of a big deal. 
until this came out. This device came out. It's called the AIR device, A-I-R-E. And it's a simple device that measures hydrogen gas. Uh, the newest model measures hydrogen and methane. When you blow into it, it registers on your smartphone the amount of hydrogen and methane you're producing. Now, the inventor is Dr. Angus Short from Dublin, Ireland. He invented it for his girlfriend, his, his fiance, now wife, because she had irritable bowel syndrome and was told to go on a low FODMAPS diet, essentially a low fiber, low sugar diet. Well, he saw how much she struggled with that and had inadvertent exposures and would have diarrhea and bloating, abdominal discomfort. So he invents this device. He thought it was only useful for IBS and low FODMAPS diet. Well, I got a hold of it in 2019. I called him. I said, Angus, do you understand what this is? He says, no. I said, this is not just a device for that. It's a device that maps out where in the GI tract microbes are living. And it's a way to find out why you have a food intolerance. So whether it's FODMAPs or nightshades or fructose or fruit or nuts. So people will say, I can't eat tomatoes. It's a nightshade. So if I avoid tomatoes, I'm okay. No, you're not okay. The problem wasn't the tomato. The problem was the SIBO that caused your nightshade intolerance. Get rid of the SIBO and more than nine times out of 10, you can eat tomatoes all, all day if you want. And so now the device, unfortunately, in its current version, doesn't have this instruction because it's kind of, an, it was news to this engineer. He's not a doctor, he's an engineer, but it's a game changer for intestinal health. But uh, I point this out because what shocked me, what shocked me, Jason, was the number of people, we've done this now hundreds, perhaps thousands of people. It's the exceptional person who tests negatives for hydrogen gas. And you can say, well, maybe the device is flawed. Maybe the method is flawed. But here's what happens. Here's how this plays out in real life. Somebody tests. There's a specific way to do this. They test. They have real high value hydrogen gas, zero to 10, maybe 10. They do something to eradicate the SIBO and retest a month later, whatever, six weeks later. Test. They're negative now. And their irritable bowel syndrome is now gone. Their rosacea goes away. Their psoriasis goes away. They can now eat the foods they were previously intolerant to. In other words, it's not just the number we're treating. We're also seeing health phenomena. People finally lose the weight they've been trying to lose. The triglycerides drop, fatty liver recedes. So all kinds of, in, uh, it doesn't mean you have to buy one of these devices to do this. They're about, it's about 200 bucks, but it was useful over and over and over, by the way, you can share it with the rest of your family, but it, it's, it is a game changer for intestinal health. So what are some of the telltale signs for our listeners that they might have SIBO? So those food intolerances are a very good telltale sign. And if they occur within 90 minutes of consumption, so if you say, I, if I eat beans, I know I'm going to have diarrhea or bloating or, or abdominal discomfort or emotional effects, anger panic attacks, anxiety, it's suicidal thoughts. If that occurs within 90 minutes, it's diagnostic for SIBO. Because it, if it occurs within 90 minutes, it's too fast to have reached the colon. It has to be in the upper GI tract. Another very common sign would be fat malabsorption. That is, you see fat droplets after a bowel movement in the toilet, or you see staining of the porcelain where the water meets the porcelain. Rashes that don't respond well. So if you say, I've, I've had eczema, or seborrhea for years. The doctor keeps writing these topical um, steroid prescriptions. Doesn't respond. They want to put me on a biologic now. Only going to cost $4,000 a month. 
and the only side effect is liver failure. <laughs> <laughs> so th that, those are telltale signs. There's also conditions so frequently associated with SIBO that if you have them, you could pretty much assume you've got SIBO. Fibromyalgia, about if we believe Mark Pimentel's very excellent data from Cedar sinai UCLA, 100% of people with fibromyalgia have SIBO and they have it to a severe degree. The great majority of people with irritable bowel, irritable bowel syndrome have SIBO. People with neurodegenerative diseases or autoimmune diseases have SIBO. If you're obese, a type 2 diabetic, have metabolic syndrome, prediabetes, fatty liver, very high likelihood. You know, there's a 150 million Americans with fatty liver now. Wow. And 50% of them have SIBO. Not my speculation. This is formal evidence. So if 150 million Americans have fatty liver on their way to cirrhosis, by the way, I hear my colleagues say things like, oh, don't worry. You have fatty liver. What can I do about it, Doc? Nothing. Meaning there's no pharmaceutical or procedure for it, even though you can do a ton about it nutritionally and in the microbiome. But those people go, go on to have cirrhosis. Cirrhosis is not this benign condition. It is a horrible condition. Your belly swells with fluid. Your lid, you start to turn yellow from jaundice. And you get varicose veins in your esophagus, causing you to uh, puke up bright red blood. I've had many people puke bright, bright red blood at me in the emergency room because they had esophageal varices. Cir cirrhosis is a terrible condition. So to say to somebody, there's nothing we can do. And then we'll watch you as you go through cirrhosis. And then we'll put you on the liver transplant list. I don't know if you ever saw somebody with a liver transplant. It is an absolute horrible procedure. You have not bought a person a new life. It's an awful life. So to tell somebody that is, is to mine and my view, criminal. When fatty liver is incredibly easy to turn around within two weeks. But it's not going to require drugs or procedures. So a half, half the population in this country, 150 million people. So 50% of the population, well, 160 million, have fatty liver, half of whom have been tested, not the entire 150 million, but a portion of them, 50% have SIBO. So that alone is what, 75 million people, something, 60 million people, something like that, just with that one condition who have SIBO. And so what's driving, so the fatty liver leads to cirrhosis potentially, is that what, and so is it? alcohol consumption that is leading to fatty liver or is it something else? Cause we hear of cirrhosis, you tend to think of alcoholism. Is it alcohol that's driving this or something else? Alcohol can drive it, but you can do this without drinking a drop of booze. So there are a number of things that contribute to this. One, one thing that leads to fatty liver is uh, consumption of grains and sugars. And the reason for that is the amylopectin A carbohydrate of grains and sugars, whether it's fructose, sucrose, or glucose. The liver is very good at converting sugars to triglycerides, fats. That's called de novo lipogenesis, lipogenesis, making fats. So the liver takes those sugars, converts them to triglycerides. Some of those triglycerides gain entry to the bloodstream. So everybody who's got a fatty liver also has high triglycerides. And, but some of the triglycerides stay in the liver. That's what clogs up the liver. Now, if you have insulin resistance, which is tens of millions of people in this country, insulin resistance turns up the volume on that process, makes it much worse. And then lastly, when you have dysbiosis, but more so SIBO, because the small bowel has a fragile single layer mucus barrier, 
the colon has a much more durable, strong du double layer of mucus barrier. So when microbes crawl up the small bowel, they're more easily, their, their breakdown products, endotoxemia, is better able to enter the bloodstream. Now, the gastrointestinal tract is drained by something called the portal system. It's a venous system that drains straight to the liver before it enters the rest of the body. So GI tract, small bowel, endotoxemia, draining to the liver via the portal circulation, your poor liver takes a beating, eightfold higher, eightfold higher levels of endotoxin compared to the general circulation. So consumption of grains and sugars, insulin resistance, very common, and then endotoxemia in the portal system, add those three up, your poor liver's been taking a beating. So it doesn't require alcohol to develop cirrhosis. In fact, this is becoming an epidemic. But unfortunately, my colleagues still say, sorry, there's nothing we can do. I mean, there's no drugs or procedures because they practice willful ignorance on nutrition, nutrients, and the microbiome. Wow. Fascinating. I never thought of cirrhosis outside the context of alcohol consumption. Um, it, you know, SIBO, the numbers are, are obviously very alarming. What I also found alarming is, oh, great. There's SIBO's lesser known cousin, if you will, which you call CIFO, S-I-F-O. I'm like, this is a new one. I'm, I'm first to everything here. Can you talk about CIFO? So but typically after antibiotics or somebody who consumes a lot of sugars, like sugary soft drinks, it encourages, so fungi, that's what CIFO is, small intestinal fungal overgrowth. Fungi love sugars. So whenever there's a lot of sugar in the vicinity or antibiotics kill off some healthy bacteria that kept fungi in check, fungi proliferate. And these are species like Candida albicans, Candida cobrata, Malassezia, and others. They proliferate and they, like their nasty bacterial friends, can also ascend up into the small bowel, giving you 30 feet of fungal overgrowth. And that is, it's not as well charted out as SIBO, but it is surprisingly common. It's my view that you don't develop CFO until you've had SIBO because it's, it's healthy microbes, bacterial microbes that keep fungi in check. But this can be responsible for most commonly this feeling of insatiable sugar cravings, it's one way. Another is eczema that won't respond to uh, steroid creams or just having eczema. A lot of mood swings also. It's very difficult to distinguish SIBO from CIFO just on symptoms, but those kind of three phenomena are more common in CIFO. Now, the conventional answer, sadly, Jason, is ignore it or for the doctor to make fun of you. Oh, Jason, did you consult Dr. Google again? Don't waste my time. There's nothing wrong with you. There's no such thing. The, the harebrained things my colleagues say is it's just endless. So the good news here is, unfortunately, there's no air device for intestinal fungi. You could do a stool analysis and you could see excess of fungus that way. But lately, the means to manage fungal overgrowth if you suspect you have because you've got skin rashes and wild mood swings, et cetera, the treatments are so benign, it would be reasonable to, uh, uh, to uh, proceed empirically. That is based on your best judgment. Because the, the things we use, like berberine or curcumin, non-absorbed factors, by the way, you see a lot of uh, hair pulling over. Why doesn't berberine or curcumin get absorbed? We're going to force absorption. We're going to 
and piperine and biopterin and nanoparticle emulsions. We're going to force absorption, ignoring the fact that if, so if you take 100 milligrams of curcumin, you poop out 99 milligrams. But we know that it reduces inflammatory markers like C-reactive protein. We know it reduces arthritis pain. Well, how it doesn't do that if it never makes it to the bloodstream and never makes it to the knee or other parts of the body? Because it's having effects via the microbiome, bacteria, fungi, as well as the mucus and intestinal immune barrier. So we use a lot of berberine, curcumin, and food source essential oils that we dilute. And because those are very effective, those terpenes and food source essential oils are very safe. But there's a very specific way to use them because you don't take them directly. They're very, they're very caustic. They can burn. You want to dilute them heavily into... So we use a few drops, for instance, olive oil, do that. And the downside of fungal overgrowth is that two things. One, it takes much longer than SIBO, takes months, two, three months, not uncommon. And two, both eradication of both SIBO and SIFO, but SIFO more so, has this so-called die-off reaction phenomenon. That is when you kill off microbes, they have, you, you force a rapid endotoxemia. And the most common effects are anxiety, racing heart, palpitations, panic attacks, even low-grade fever, muscle aches. feels like the flu. Now, there are ways to subdue that effect. You can slow down your approach, space out your dosing, reduce the dose, generate less die-off, or taking something like activated charcoal, like a 1,000 milligrams. It works very well. So it's CFO, a whole nother world. We need better data, but but it's a real thing. So there's so much great research in the book. I'm curious, while writing, was there one specific study that just jumped out at you and, and your jaw dropped? Yeah, there was a series of, actually a series of studies, Jason, from MIT that started in 2017 to, two, I'm sorry, 2013 to 2017. It came from a cancer group. They were just looking at the anti-cancer effects of this one species of microbe, Lactobacillus roteri. But they noticed that the mice who got the roteri developed all kinds of unexpected effects. Their skin healed faster after a wound. Their hair grew faster. They had more lustrous, moist hair, more sebum. They didn't get fat when fed a bad diet. They didn't lose their hair. They continued to mate and play with each other even into old age. They preserved muscle, didn't lose muscle like Uh, all aging creatures do. In other words, a whole range of positive effects. So thinking about that, seeing this, these data, I said, you know what? I'm going to get that same microbe. Its full name is Lactobacillus roterite DSM-17938. So that's the strain that you used. Well, that's available actually as a commercial uh, product. It comes from a company in Sweden called BioGaia, and it's sold as a product called Gastrus, G-A-S-T-R-U-S. But it's a tablet intended for infants because it reduces colic. It uh, helps them recover from diarrhea after an antibiotic. has some other positive effects. Reduces regurgitation of formula and, and breast milk. So, but the, because it was intended for babies, it was a very low dose, very low counts of microbes. So I thought, well, how can we get more of an adult dose? So I did something crazy. I made yogurt at it, but not yogurt in the conventional sense. Commercial yogurt is made by fermenting for four hours. Fermentation meaning a doubling, bacterial doubling. One microbe becomes two, two becomes four. 
They don't have sexual reproduction like, like we do. They just double. So Reuterite doubles every three hours. So if we did like they do with a yogurt factory and we allowed it to double over four hours, you've got nothing. So I fermented it for 36 hours, 12 doublings. And we perform something called flow cytometry on the yogurt, count microbes, and we get somewhere around 350, 360 billion bacteria per half cup serving. And now this is anecdotal, but thousands of people eating this yogurt with super duper high counts of rotorite and virtually all the observations made in mice are playing out in humans. The ladies love it because there's an explosion of dermal collagen and they start to lose their skin wrinkles at about eight weeks. There's an acceleration of healing. There's a deeper sleep. So I was a chronic insomniac. Always struggling to sleep, watching TV and reading books at 3 a.m. I sleep now straight through nine hours, vivid dreams. Those of us who use actigraphic devices like an Apple Watch or an Aura Ring or a Whoop or a Fitbit and track REM and other phases of sleep, you'll see an extension, 20, 25% extended REM periods, which is restorative sleep important for mental health. Libido goes up. You start to have more erotic dreams. This is true. You restore muscle loss. We lose muscle and strength as we age. It comes back, particularly if you combine it with strength training. There, there is human data that it preserves bone density. And you know what? Because this effect, according to the MIT studies, works, Rotary tells your brain to release oxytocin, the hormone of love and empathy. People say, you know, I like my spouse better. I like my family better. They are less annoying to me. I like my coworkers better. I introduce myself to strangers in line for coffee at Starbucks. I'm better able to understand other people's opinions. So we're seeing incredible physical and social consequences of this one microbe. Now, there's many other microbes, by the way, Jason, missing, absent in modern microbiomes, and we can do the same. So I tell people, don't get overwhelmed by this. Think of it like going to a restaurant. You go to a restaurant. Waitress hands you a menu. You don't freak out and say, there's no way I can order all these appetizers, main courses, and, and desserts. You pick and choose the ones you want. Well, we can do the same in the microbiome. If you want smoother skin, deeper sleep, and increased libido, ferment lactobacillus rotorite. If you have a newborn, you want that child to be healthier, sleep through the night, have half as many bowel movements, half as many diaper changes have less asthma later on, have less irritable syndrome, and have a higher IQ, let's ferment bifidobacteria infantis. If you want to, if you're a competitive athlete and you want to have quicker recovery, let's ferment bacillus coagulates, the Ganeden strain, and that blocks the breakdown of muscle so that you recover much faster. So you can pick the microbe for the effect you want. Now, this is once you get rid of the SIBO, by the way, SIBO and SIBO. Because if you do this, flip, if you flip-flop, you do the yogurts because they're so fun, right? So exciting, so interesting. Do that first, but you're doing it in the setting of uh, Rick Roy and SIBO. You won't get these kinds of benefits. You may get some, but you won't get full. So the key is to provide a clean slate first. Address your SIBO, address your CIFO. You're feeling good. Your seborrhea is receding. Your ulcerative is getting better. That's the time to make these really interesting uh, that's happy yogurt, by the way, it could be coconut milk. It could be hummus. It could be fruit purees that you, that you ferment. Fascinating. Fascinating. So in closing, 
What's the future look like to you? Is it, you know, I feel like we've talked about fecal transplants for, for a while now, and I'm still not seeing many of them. Uh, maybe people aren't advertising they're having them. I don't know, but what, what is the future of this conversation in, you know, I know I'll say a year from now. Well, you know, I don't do fecal transplants and I'm not a big fan of them. There, there have been deaths from fecal transplant. I did not know that. Yeah. So one of the things they assume is the donor is healthy. Well, healthy is a very rare commodity nowadays. So now I think what's going to happen in that little world is there's going to be stool banks of people who have been screened for hepatitis C, HIV, all kinds of things, and for metabolic markers and have their microbiome characterized. And those people get to be chronic stool donors. And that'll be the source. Now, by the way, we have to be careful with my colleagues because they love to monetize things. So they try to make every health condition into a procedure. It's easy to lose weight. Why do you have to do a lap band or gastric bypass that impairs somebody's health for the rest of their shortened lives? Because it's a monetization strategy. So that's the bad news. The good news is the insight, the strategies coming out of the world of the microbiome becoming so incredibly powerful. I mean, we're talking about deeper sleep, restoration of muscle, increased libido, acceleration of healing. These are big effects and it's getting better and better. I think we're going to challenge those SOBs in the pharmaceutical industry who are cutthroat, predatory, exploitative people who just want the billions and trillions of dollars that come from Americans' pockets that's why, by the way, people like you and me and a lot of the people who write books on health can no longer get on TV because it's not in the interest of Big Pharma, a major advertiser now on American media. And so uh, that's why what you're doing, Jason, is so important to get these kinds of messages out to let people know, don't pay attention to the drug advertising on TV. Let's talk among ourselves via podcasts, blogs, social media to some degree, let's collaborate, let's learn. And because right now, even though you don't hear it on CBS or NBC, the tools in the microbiome have become very impressively effective. But somebody's got to tell you, it ain't going to be the doctor because the doctor doesn't care. Well said, William, thank you so much. Really excited for Supercut. Congratulations. Thank you, Jason. And keep on doing what you're doing. It is truly a critical thing you're doing. It's very helpful. Thank you.